You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898. A podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Professor Barbara E. Mundy. Professor Mundy is Chair and Professor of Art History at Fordham University in New York. She specialises in Latin American art with emphasis on indigenous art and cartography in the 16th century. Her first book, The Mapping of New Spain, Indigenous Cartography and Maps of the Relaciones Geográficas, published in 1996, was winner of the Nibensal Prize in the History of Cartography. Professor Mundy's interest in digital humanities has resulted in a pioneering work, Vistas, Visual Culture in Spanish America, 1520-1820, that was co-authored with Dana Liebson and funded by an NEH Digital Development and Demonstration Grant, which is now accessible online at fordham.edu forward slash vistas. Her latest book, The Death of Aztec Tenochtitlan, The Life of Mexico City, published in 2015, centres on Tenochtitlan, Mexico City and its transformation from the sacred capital of the Aztecs into the centre of Spain's overseas empire. It has recently received the 2017 Bryce Wood Book Award from the Latin American Studies Association. Professor Mundy, Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Edward. It's a thrill to be with you today. Well, you're very welcome. We arrived at a broad causeway and we headed for Iztapalapa, when we saw so many cities and towns built in the water, and other great towns on dry land, and that causeway so straight and level as it went to Mexico, we were amazed. We said it looked like the enchanted things they tell of in the Book of Amadis, because of the great towers and temples and buildings that are in the water, all built of stone masonry. Some of our soldiers even asked if what we saw was not a dream, and it is not to be wondered at that I write here in this way, because there is so much to ponder, that I do not know how to describe it. Seeing things never heard of, nor even dreamed of, as we were seeing. Thus wrote Spanish conquistador Bernal Díaz del Castillo in his book The True History of the Conquest of New Spain, an account of the overthrow of the great Aztec city of Tenochtitlan in 1521. To Spanish conquerors, this city, built on Lake Texcoco in the Valley of Mexico, was unlike anything they had ever seen when they first encountered it in 1519. Yet, just two years later, the Aztec capital had fallen to Spanish forces and was in ruins, and its leaders dead or imprisoned. And so, Barbara, if we were to read only the Spanish sources of the devastation of the city, and there were quite a few, we would assume that the city as an Aztec entity ceased to exist in 1521. You, however, argue that while the letters of Hernán Cortés make clear that he raised and destroyed the Aztec capital, nothing could be further from the truth. And, when we become attentive to a wider range of sources, the Spanish conquest seems less triumphalist. So, to quote you, while Tenochtitlan as an indigenous imperial capital certainly came to an end with its conquest, the death of Tenochtitlan as an indigenous city is a myth. Can you explain what you mean by this? When we read these wonderful accounts like Bernal Díaz de Castillo's, we get a picture of this extraordinary city that floated on the lake um, and was almost unimaginable to Europeans who read with incredible avidity the, the accounts that were being sent back. But in fact, when we turn to historical, a, a broader range of historical sources, we see that, in fact, the Spanish are, were promoting their own kind of disinformation campaign by insisting that their conquest was a total and complete one. When we, we start looking at a broader range of sources, including ind indigenous accounts of the city, both during and particularly after the conquest, 
we can see that, in fact, what happened on the ground was not a total destruction of the city and an erasure of indigenous rule, but really something that we think of as kind of a Pax Indiana, where there was a delicate negotiation that was carried out over the course of a century between Spaniards and indigenous leaders and and peoples. Because, of course, Spanish rule could not have taken hold had it not been for the cooperation and sometimes complicity of indigenous elites and indigenous peoples. And that's the part of the story that's really left out of the conquest. It's, of course, you know, history is written by the victors. And in this case, the Spanish won the Spanish conquest. They toppled the indigenous leadership of of Tenochtitlan. But in fact, their story lacks, I think, both nuance and it in some ways is, is not really the truth because it doesn't prepare us for the amazing cultural complexity that we see today in Latin America, which cannot be explained if we accept that there was a triumphant and complete conquest in the 16th century. Can you explain for our listeners why an indigenous narrative of the conquest is so important? We really can't understand the present if we don't understand the past. And when we look back to the past and see the ways that conquered people responded to conquest, it gives us a better purchase on the present. I'm thinking very specifically about the United States' disastrous engagement in Iraq, where I think because the leaders were not students of history, they thought that we could march in and people would be grateful for being conquered. It's never the case. And if you are attentive to the lessons of history, you will understand that people don't like to be conquered and that, in fact, forms of resistance are both direct and subtle and that, in many ways, culture is enduring. What we see in the conquest of Mexico is that indigenous culture, which was deeply rooted, we have indigenous cities that existed, you know, 3,000 years before contact with Europe, that, that culture is, is obdurate and people do not change their cultural patterns or cultural habits simply because the guy at the top is a different, wears a different face or a different set of, of clothes. Um, and that is true, was true in the 16th century, and it is very true today. Before we speak about the alternate indigenous history of the conquest of Tenochtitlan, can you give a summary of the traditional narrative? That is, the accounts provided by individuals such as Hernán Cortés and Bernal Díaz del Castillo. So the most important narrative that we have of the Spanish conquest is the one written by Hernán Cortés. During the course of his entry into what is now Mexico and his conquest of the city, He wrote letters, a series of them, to his king, Charles V, in order to justify his actions as he engaged with the Mexica rulers of Tenochtitlan. He needed to prove that this was a just conquest um, and did so by carefully framing a dramatic account of, of his encounter. In this encounter, he talks about, he, of course, maximizes his victories and minimizes his defeats. And he tells us about his 
triumphal entry where he was welcomed into Tenochtitlan in 1519. He was embraced by the Mexica Emperor Moctezuma. But quickly, relations between the two sides soured. And Cortes minimizes this in his account to Charles V. Subsequently, during the Noche Triste, the Spaniards were kicked out of Mexico City, and it really looked like the Aztecs or the Mexica had defeated them. But they rallied, and we know this again from Cortez's letters. They moved back to find um, succor with allies to the east of the capital and regrouped, adding to their numbers many indigenous forces. Cortez's account tells us of a kind of triumphal re-entry and conquest of, of Tenochtitlan over the course of, of about three or four months in the summer of 1521. And then in his last letters, he really talks about how he had destroyed and razed the city. He then moves on to other conquests. He, he goes down into Honduras. And that's really the end of this first great historical narrative. And historians have followed suit with Hernando Cortez and, and really ended the story when he's, his attention moved away from the city. Because of that, we have this historical blank spot where we don't know very much about the city after the conquest. Bernal Diaz del Castillo does, who writes another great narrative that's, that's published actually much later on, but he writes it at the end of his life. His is a dramatic narrative that is clearly shaped over retelling during the course of his very long life. He presents, too, a, a narrative about this, this fall um, over the course of months as the city itself was kind of starved into submission. And, and he actually does tell us more about the city after the conquest. But he wrote volumes and volumes and volumes, and most people don't read the whole narrative of Bernal Diaz because it's so long. They kind of stop at the end of the conquest and, and end their story there. So the narratives that have been written and the ones particularly that have been translated into English really end very much as Cortez proclaims his own victory over the city and then and stop there. So what kinds of sources or narratives did you use to construct or collate an indigenous narrative as, as a counter to the traditional Spanish chronicle? I've long worked on cartography, and when I started looking at maps of Mexico City, it became very apparent to me that when you look at indigenous maps of the post-conquest city, it's as if the Spaniards are not there at all. And that gave me a sense that there was an entirely different perspective to be had from the ground. If you were thinking about what life was like in one of these densely populated indigenous neighborhoods in the city, say in the 1560s, some 40 years after the conquest, many of the patterns of life, of, of agriculture, of marketing, of, of food waves, would have remained relatively unchanged. Landscape, too, would have in some ways changed um, not so dramatically. And maps show us this because they give us these images of indigenous landscapes that, that really could have existed 
before the conquest and could have existed after the conquest. So my first step into constructing an, an indigenous view of the city really began with the maps that indigenous peoples themselves had made of the city. The very existence of the city itself um, was a remarkable feat of human ingenuity. How did it come to be? And how did it manage to establish itself as a centre of imperial power for almost 200 years? The Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan was an island that rose out of a shallow lake. We know from archaeology that, in fact, it started out as these little rocky outcrops in the middle of this vast lake lake that was measured about 150 kilometers north to south. And what the people of Tenochtitlan did over the course of over 200 years was they built out their island by taking soil from the lake bed and, and building out a, an incredible island, which became their city. The city itself was an extraordinary engineering feat. The lake itself is, is what we would think of as an inland sea. It has no natural outlets. And thus, the peoples of the island and the peoples around the lake needed to construct huge dikes and aqueducts in order to control the, the rising and falling le levels of the lake to protect the city and in order to supply the city with fresh water. So when we start looking at the ecological history of the Valley of Mexico, we become really aware of the extraordinary engineering feats that peoples of the valleys engaged in, in order to create a verdant and almost utopian landscape. Key to this was controlling the lake itself. The lake is, is mostly saline and by a careful series of dikes, which allowed fresh water to flood into the city, the Mexica of Tenochtitlan and other peoples created these freshwater zone, which enabled agriculture. And once they controlled the freshwater sources and had access to these very fertile um, lakeside lands, population could could grow tremendously. And that seems to be what, what happened. So it happened actually over a, a fairly brief span of time where we have the control of water, the building of, of agricultural lands, and then a growing population. Can you talk about the idea of the city as a multifaceted space um, and not merely a political domain for ruling class and why this is significant for understanding how Tenochtitlan endured after the conquest? We often confuse cities with their leaders. But in fact, cities are great conglomerates of, of a whole range of human activities. In the case of Tenochtitlan, our understanding of, of our understanding of the city as a Spanish city was in fact because it was ruled by a group of Spanish colonial officials. But that really obscures what went on in the city. And I think when you start thinking about cities as being made by the people who live in them, then you 
come away with a very different view of what cities are and how they exist. I was very influenced in writing this book by the work of Michel Disserteau, who writes about the ways that people, as they walk through the city, literally create it. And he compares their itineraries to a form of writing, a form of inscription, a form of kind of verbal creation. And thinking about the ways that people in Tenochtitlan literally created their city by being in it, by moving around it, by by creating market centers, by engaging with each other, made me think of brought me to a different understanding of the city. As an art historian, I'm, of course, very sensitive to the ways that, say, architecture defines a city. But because we are trained to look at big, massive buildings, that's the legacy of our training in, in European modes of building, we tend to overlook the importance in the lives of cities, particularly cities of the Americas, of huge open plazas because it's in the outside that urban life really takes place. So I started to think not only about the ways people were moving in the city, the ways people were engaging with each other in the city, but I also started to think about the ways that vacant spaces played an instrumental role in the city. And again, they often slip below the level of visibility because we're trained to focus our eyes on architecture that is um, mass rather than void. So thinking about void was, was crucial in, in, for me in reimagining the city. And that made me think about the ways that plazas, particularly um, plazas used for markets, functioned in creating a sense of both creating the economy of the city, but also creating a sense of identity for the residents who lived in and around the city. I'm intrigued um, in your book, The Death of Aztec Tenochtitlan, how you use the modern day map of Mexico City's metro system to mark out examples of the city's lived space, as well as to introduce us to the city's historical narrative. Can you tell us about this? I wanted to find a way to show my readers how history is everywhere around us and we just have to be attentive to it. My attention was caught because I ride the metro in Mexico City all the time. My attention was, has always been caught by this marvelous map that the American designer Lance Wyman made for Mexico City. And the map is, was important in the 60s and continues to be so because it proclaimed Mexico City is kind of a new urban space, modern, full of amenities like mass rapid transit. But when you start looking at this, the map itself, which, which is an emblem of Mexico's modernity, and you pay attention to all of the place names, you can see how history, the deep past of Mexico City, is always coming up to the surface of the city. I thought the map would be a, a kind of a fun artifact to use to tell a narrative of the, the city's history by looking carefully at the place names and thinking about what each of those place names referenced. Because when you start thinking about the map in that way as a, almost an index to historical incident, 
you can really see that almost the whole history of modern day Mexico is being told through the names of the subway stations of, of Mexico. But again, so I, I was trying to accomplish two things there. Number one, I wanted to be able to give a very brief synopsis of the history of Mexico within a space of about four pages. And I didn't want to use just a straight historical narrative. And I also wanted to make the point that if you're attentive and that if you really care about the city and you think deeply about it, you will be able to see that the past is always with us in every present moment of moving through the city. What can you tell us about the importance of water in representations of Tenochtitlan? Any visitor to Mexico City today, particularly visitors to Mexico City in the months of July and August and maybe even September, will be amazed at the quantity of water that falls from the sky almost every afternoon. Mexico City, though, is a dry space. There aren't visible rivers. We don't see lakes around it. And it presents us with a somewhat of a contradiction of being a place that receives a tremendous amount of natural rainfall, but also being a city that's often in the grips of, of water shortages. Mexico City, which used to be known as Tenochtitlan, has always had a difficult relationship with water. Going back to the first millennia when settlements were settled around the, the lake, And because of this relationship with water where there was either too much or not enough, water played a very important role in the residents thinking about the city. As an art historian, I was very struck by the ways in Aztec art, water is often referred to in somewhat oblique ways. The deity Chalchitlikwe, the goddess of lakes and, and still water, often appears in monuments created by the Aztecs. And the more I paid attention to her presence, the more I came to see that the ancient peoples of Mexico City were also bringing to the foreground their understanding of a, of a relationship with water. Did the prominence of water continue to be a feature in post-conquest representations of Tenochtitlan, Mexico? When we look at maps that are created after the conquest, we often see a very idyllic view of the city. And the lake surrounds the city as it did up until pretty much the 19th century. But the waters are always seen as tamed and pacific. It's when you start reading the historical account of the city after the conquest that you realize what a disaster the city had become. During the wars of conquest, the Spaniards broke the dikes that protected the city from, from floodwaters. And they also didn't understand the delicate balance between the city and its surrounding waters. And they didn't pay attention to the great engineering works that their predecessors, the Mexica, had created in the valley. Thus, when we enter into the historical record of, say, the 17th century, we find that Spaniards are, are writing about plagues of floods that happened to the city. 
in part because of their own mismanagement of water resources. Maps tend to tell us a very idyllic story of the city. Many of them are done by Spanish map makers, and they're often done for export. So they're meant to really show how well-organized and beautiful the city was in the wake of the conquest. And they tend to show the waters of the city as being very um, tamed and and, and, um, unproblematic. It's only in another, it's only in the historical records that you start to understand how actually um, dangerous and devastating the mismanagement of water turned out to be for the city in the 17th century. What was the relationship between the Tlatoani or the ruler and the city environment? In Aztec Tenochtitlan, the Tlatoani or, or ruler was responsible not only for the governance of the city, its its political infrastructure. He was also responsible for its ecological infrastructure. We're starting to understand better the way the city was ruled. And we we think that the Tlatuani, well, we know that Tlatuani had a kind of second in command called the Siwakoyatl. And the Siwakoyatl seems to have been the person who was responsible for the maintenance of the infrastructure. So rulership was predicated not only on being well-born and having the right bloodlines, but it was also predicated on being able to manage the complicated environment around Tenochtitlan. We see this because the Siwakoatl is often depicted with a digging stick, which is a kind of an icon that's used to show somebody who can build things or can create dikes or canals. We know from this icon that, in fact, the Mexica high rulership are showing themselves to their peoples as being the ones who are the kind of engineer-in-chief as well as the commander-in-chief. So being able to manage the surrounding environment played a role in public perception of the Tlatuani as well as playing a role in actually the obligations of the rulers to to his peoples. Turning once again to the destruction of the city in 1521, when you started to examine the indigenous sources, what were the most striking differences to Spanish accounts that began to manifest themselves to you? A fundamental shift in my understanding of the city came when I read Andres Lira's extraordinary book, Comunidades Indígenas Frente de la Ciudad de México, which is about the existence of Mexico City's indigenous government, I underscore indigenous government here, through the 19th century. To me, the whole idea that Mexico City, one of the largest Latin American capitals, one of the most modern cities in Latin America in the 19th century, in fact, one of the most modern cities in the Americas in the 19th century, had an indigenous government. To me, this was absolutely extraordinary. 
And it got me thinking about the ways that in order for Mexico City to have had an indigenous government in the 19th century, that indigenous government had to have existed since the very moment of conquest. And with this in mind, I started to pay more attention to the ways that indigenous accounts were very careful about emphasizing their own internal mechanisms of government in the city. All the information I used for for this book, some of it is, I mean, some of it is archival, but some of it is seemed to me just to be hidden in plain sight. But people, other historians, maybe hadn't thought so much about the through line or emphasizing this particular through line of indigenous governance in the city. So when I really armed by Lieta's extraordinary account of the existence of this government, when I started to think about how there was precedent for this government in all of the historical accounts, one just needed to look for them. My job as a historian became quite easy. Until the last half of the 20th century, most histories of Latin America have been written out of what we think of as the Spanish archive. That is, the histories, the documents that are written in Spanish, often for a Spanish audience. Many of the documents about the city that are written in Spanish deal with either the day-to-day running of the city by the Spanish Cabildo, or they deal with relationships between the city itself, a viceregal capital, and the imperial capital in, in eventually Madrid. And so when you look at this particular archive, it would seem that Mexico City is a city really just run by Spanish and, and entrenched in, in kind of Spanish politics of the ruling body of the Cabildo. But in the last, say, 50 years, historians and art historians have paid attention to and and also been better trained to understand that there's a different archive about the city. In fact, there's a different archive about Latin America. And that's what we think of as the indigenous archive. It is the archive that indigenous peoples created, often in indigenous language, sometimes in Spanish, where they were writing about themselves and their own communities and their experiences in cities. Paying attention to that particular archive allows you to write a very different history of cities in Latin America. And that's in part what I was attempting to do. So in 1521, the ceremonial precinct of Tenochtitlan was destroyed and the rebuilding of the city, um, according to a Spanish grid pattern, had begun by 1524. But how do the four Altepeme of Mayotlan, Teopan, Atzacoalco and Cuepopan uh, fare after the conquest? Across ancient Mexico, most people identified with their city-states, something we call the Altepetl. The plural of that is Altepeme. And People would think of themselves not as, say, Aztecs or as as Mexicans, but they would think of themselves as members of a particular Altepec. In Mexico City or Tenochtitlan, there seemed to have been four Altepec that came together 
And each of them survived after the conquest. Each of them had a cabildo or, or a, a kind of a government house, and they each of them had a, a structure of rulership. And what happened over the course of the 16th century was that the four different Altepeme of Mexico City found ways to maintain their autonomy within the structure, a new structure that was demanded of them by um, the Spanish colonial government. In other words, they had to combine to create a single unified government in Mexico City. But what we find when we start reading the records of that government is that all of the four Altepeme are, are represented in the cabildo or governing body. In other words, within the indigenous cabildo, which is the governing body that oversaw the indigenous city, we find representatives from the four different Altepeme um, coming together to manage the day-to-day -day affairs of the city. We're only starting to understand now the social organization of the city as it continues through the colonial period. What seems to have happened was that the subunits of each of these four parts of the city called Plashilakali survived. And they survived often as um, indigenous parishes, each with their own chapel at which to worship. And the larger entities, that is the four parts or Atapeme, were reinforced because the religious structure of the city essentially respected the identity of the city as a four-part city. And so the four Atapeme became different kind of religious precincts run by different Catholic orders within the city. So looking closely at indigenous sources has allowed us to see that, in fact, the roots of the Catholic and colonial city has much to do with the social arrangements that were negotiated long before the conquest by the indigenous residents of the city. So in the siege of Tenochtitlan by Cortez's forces, to reach the city um, by the lake, Cortez's brigantines needed to breach the dikes of Nezahualcoyotl and Ahuitzotl, two major dikes, which caused long-term damage to the delicate equilibrium of the lake ecology. What happened here exactly? In the creation of the city of Tenochtitlan, today Mexico City, the Mexica rulers had constructed two enormous dikes to the east of the city. These dikes essentially cordoned off the salty waters of Lake Texcoco, which lay to the east, and allowed fresh water sources from the west of the city to um, stream into the area on the west, creating a freshwater precinct where agriculture could take place. When Cortez's brigantines broke through the dikes in order to reach the city, um, they destroyed the main protection of the city against salty water 
and against floodwaters. The, the devastating consequences of not maintaining the dikes and allowing the surging salt waters to the east flood into the system and overtake the delicate balance of the western freshwater um, areas um, wasn't really apparent right after the conquest because soon after Mexico City and the whole valley became um, gripped by a terrible, terrible drought. And therefore, much of the lake was kind of dry or just barely swampy. It was only when the rain started to return in the 1540s that the consequences of not maintaining the dikes was evident. And we start seeing disastrous floods of the cities in the 1550s. That was because the protective, this, these two protective dikes that lay to the east of the city had been dismantled and not maintained. And so when the waters returned, the floodwaters from the east simply swept in and overtook the city. Managing the levels of the lake would be a constant preoccupation for both the Spanish government as well as the indigenous government throughout the 16th century and beyond. The crucial moment really came during the Wars of Conquest, and it not only disrupted the flow of water in the lakes, but it also showed how the Spanish conquistadors had no understanding of this amazing ecological feat that had been constructed. And in an act, a kind of careless or wanton act of destruction, they simply didn't understand that this act during a time of warfare would have disastrous consequences over the course of the 16th century and, and well beyond. As you note, representations of space such as maps contain ideologically coded and culturally specific ideas about space. And this is highlighted starkly in two contrasting maps of the city from 1563 and 1565. Can you explain the different visions of the city offered in each map and why this is significant? One of the maps shows us the area around the Plaza Mayor, which is today the Great Zocalo of Mexico City. This was the area that was the heart of the Spanish city, and most of the buildings around it were occupied by powerful Spaniards. The viceregal court, um, Hernán Cortés's family, um, the Cabildo, which was the local government run by Spaniards. And when you look just at the plaza, it looks as though Mexico City's heart is a Spanish city. The buildings are in a European style, and there's very little evidence that this had once been the great capital of the Aztec or Mexica City with the Templo Mayor looming at one end of it and other temples and, and um, buildings devoted to religious practice um, in, that, in that large space. So if we look just at that map, we would be thinking about the city as simply a kind of a new colonial Spanish city. But if we turn to another map, which is done really roughly at the same time, that shows us the great zones of agriculture that indigenous people were working 
somewhat on the outskirts of the city. We understand that the city now is a totally different kind of space, one that's dominated by indigenous agricultural protection, one where indigenous people are owning the lands, one where indigenous rulers are organizing this particular space. The indigenous map gives us a window into the extraordinary engineering feats of the valley. What we're looking at here are acres and acres of something called chinampas. Chinampas are floating beds. They're created when, in the shallow lake beds, agriculturalists would dig up, muck up the the, the muck, this very fertile soil from the bottom of the lake, and they would pile it into beds. The waters would be canalized around the edge of the beds, and that would provide irrigation year-round, even during the dry season. And it would also provide a way to move the crops that were grown, being grown on this nutrient-rich soil to market. When we look at this map, again, from a generation or two after the conquest, we can really start to understand how enduring certain practices, particularly um, agricultural practices, were in the valley itself. To compare the two, it's hard to think that we are talking about the same city because one shows us the city is a collection of buildings in which Spanish conquistadors lived rather grandly, and the other shows us the practices through which the city was able to feed and sustain itself. In my book, I try to bring those two visions of the city into conversation. Neither of them is completely true. The indigenous city was not existing without the presence of the Spanish colonial government. And the Spanish colonial government, perhaps more importantly, could not have existed without the presence of this indigenous city all around it. Now, you alluded briefly to markets. Um, how important are markets in understanding the persistence of Tenochtitlan as a lived space after the conquest? When we try to reconstruct the city using maps... We often overlook markets because markets are blank spaces on maps. They're the plazas, the empty spaces that often escaped notice. But we know how important markets were, beginning with the accounts of both Hernán Cortés and Bernal Díaz de Castillo, who talk about the extraordinary markets in Tenochtitlan and its sister city, Tlatelolco, where Tens of thousands of people would gather every day to buy foodstuffs and luxury goods. When I started to think about the empty spaces in Tenochtitlan, I realized that major empty spaces were devoted to these markets. A very important one existed in the southwest corner of the city. And that market, called the Tianguis, was right adjacent to the seat, the Cabildo, the government palace of indigenous rulers. We have a couple of maps of that market that show the enormous variety of foodstuffs that were being trafficked in it. They also show us the enormous expanse of this market. It was 
And if you know Mexico City, you'll understand how startling this was. It was 20, about 20% larger than the Plaza Mayor or Zocalo. Now, the Zocalo is, I think, the second largest city plaza in the world. It is enormous. It's, it's, it's just this huge space in the center of Mexico City. So if you can imagine that space amplified by 20%, plunk it down to the southwest of city, the city, you will have the great Tiangas of, of Mexico City after the conquest. It's significant that the indigenous government palace was right adjacent to it and, in fact, oversaw it. The government palace was a two-story building. We know from, we have a sense from other historical records that one of the ways that the indigenous government could support itself was by taxing exchanges that were going on in the market. We have not a clear picture of this for the Tiangas, but it seems that, in fact, that's one of the ways that the indigenous government could continue to both maintain itself and to maintain control of a very important part of the city. And that was by its presence in this enormous marketplace. But it's because this marketplace, the Great Tianguis, is not represented either in textual accounts or in paintings that it doesn't get paid enough attention. In contrast, there was another market in the Zocalo, the, the, plaza, the main plaza, that seems to have been not as important in the 16th century, but grew in importance in the 17th century. It was represented in paintings in the 17th century. And in fact, that's the market that gets most of the attention. But my research showed that really in the 16th century, it is not that market that's important at all. It's the great Tianguis adjacent to the indigenous palace that is the economic engine of the city. Can you tell us about the importance of Aztec elites in rebuilding the city? Before the conquest, it had been Aztec elites who knew how to manage the complex relationship between the island city and the surrounding waters. It was Aztec elites who knew how the market system works. It was Aztec elites who also knew how to manage the great labor gangs that were responsible for the infrastructure and public projects of the city. That didn't change too much after the conquest. When Hernan Cortes needed to start rebuilding the center of the city, he, of course, turned to the same elites to get the job done. We see a parallel in contemporary events where no matter who is at the very top of the food chain, there's always an elite class who knows how to run things. We saw this, for instance, in Germany after the war and then after the wall fell down. We see this in Iraq. We see this in many other countries where the political infrastructure has been, uh, in some cases, decapitated. That there is an elite class that, that runs things. And it was no different in Mexico City in the 16th century. The case was, though, that those elites who ran things happened to be members of the indigenous nobility. Is there any sense in the post-conquest chronicles 
or art that these elites were looked upon with uh, disdain or seen as collaborators by the natives of Tenochtitlan? The indigenous population of Tenochtitlan felt an enormous allegiance to their rulers. This was part and parcel of a long tradition of the way relationships between commoners and nobles had been worked out in central Mexico over the course of centuries. Commoners looked to elites to protect them, to look after their welfare, to be responsible for, say, massive public works that benefited everybody. There was a social contract between elites and commoners. And that persisted into the 16th century. Commoners understood that elites would look after them as a community. In return, they were expected to deliver tribute to maintain elites. And they were also expected to contribute to public work projects that, that were for the common good. What happened in over the course of the 16th century was that this delicate political equilibrium that had been worked out over the course of centuries um, started to break down. And the reasons for the breakdown really had to do with the tribute system. What happened over the course of the 16th century was that you had too many elites asking to be supported by too few commoners. The epidemic diseases that devastated populations in Mexico, in Mexico, across Mexico, over the course of the 16th century, had a terrible effect as they frayed these political arrangements. In addition, you also had a new class of elites, the Spanish conquistadors, who looked down the food chain to indigenous commoners to supply them with goods and services. By the 1560s, we have both indigenous elites who are looking to maintain themselves as they had for the conquest, being supported by indigenous commoners. And then you also have Spanish conquistadors, Spanish nobility, Spanish uh, members of the viceregal court who are also looking at this same um, commoner class to support them. The problem is, though, that that commoner class is dwindling because of the effect of, because they're being, they're dying off by epidemic diseases. So by mid-centuries, you start seeing clear evidence that the social compact is starting to, to break apart. And that's when you get commoners starting to protest that they are being exploited. But before then, when there's enough kind of good goods to go around, the social contact seems to have helped. Now, there are these crises at the end of the, at the 16th century, but again, enough of the social contact endured so that we can find an indigenous government still existing, being supported, um, creating a, a, a sense of community in the city through the 19th century. Is it fair to say that some Spanish officials who followed in Cortes's wake, such as the Viceroy um, Antonio de Mendoza, uh, saw the importance of retaining indigenous rule within the city, or was Mendoza unique in this? Antonio de Mendoza was an extraordinary person, and I think he was 
somewhat unique in understanding that that elites, these high elites of among the Mexica nobility, shared a great deal with him. These elites like Mendoza were highly educated. They understood their responsibilities to be rulers, as did Mendoza. They understood their responsibilities to the, the common people. So I think in some ways Mendoza saw these elites as different versions of himself. And it was really Mendoza that, that made sure that indigenous elites had a role in the governance of, of Tenochtitlan. It was he that felt comfortable enough to, I think, bring them to the table in, in heading an indigenous government. But Mendoza was also joined with other Spaniards by understanding that he needed the assistance and the allegiance of indigenous elites to make the country work because it was indigenous elites who controlled labor. Again, going back to this idea of the social compact they had with indigenous populations is that indigenous peoples understood that as part of their responsibility to their leaders as part of a community, they needed to provide free labor. And it was that free labor that needed to be channeled in order for the city to be rebuilt after the conquest, in order for the city to be built across the 16th century. And Mendoza understood that. And I think he also understood that he couldn't tap into these supplies of free labor if he didn't have indigenous elites um, being the interface between himself and that, that necessary component to create the colony. Who was Diego de Alvarado Juanitzin, and why is he so important? Diego de Alvarado Juanitzin was one of the first post-conquest rulers of Mexico City. He's very important on two counts. First, he was a member of the high Mexica nobility. He was related to the deposed Emperor Moctezuma. Um, he was a powerful man with connections to other elites across the valley. But you can see from his name, Don Diego de Alvaro Juanitzin, that he was also a colonial elite. He understood the necessity of adopting, if not embracing, but certainly adopting certain practices to make himself appealing to or acceptable to um, Spanish conquistadors and colonists alike. So he took on a Spanish name. He worked closely with Franciscans. At the same time, he seems to have maintained many of the prerogatives that were due him as a high-ranking member of the Mexica nobility. So he's a fascinating figure because he's a, he's a, a, a man who understands that politics is really the art of the possible. And he also understands that the Spaniards are not going away anytime soon and that it's his role as a leader to try to negotiate a presence 
for the indigenous elites in the city to hold on to their traditional powers and prerogatives. Um, in an earlier podcast with um, Ellen Dooley of the LA County Museum of Art, um, we alluded briefly to feather paintings, which can be seen as early representations of the fusion of in- European and in- indigenous modes of art production. And one of the more famous of these, um, the Mass of St. Gregory, is, is based on an earlier European print. But you argue that this feather painting can be interpreted also as a resistance to European, that is, Spanish encroachment on indigenous society and culture, as well as an assertion of Juanitzin's authority. Can you explain this? Feather works were one of the most important art forms of the pre-Hispanic period. And feathers, because of their shimmering, iridescent qualities, were highly regarded by, by peoples before the conquest and after them. After the conquest, Spaniards themselves became entranced by the kind of artworks that could be made out of feathers and asked indigenous feather workers to start making feather works for them. One such feather work is this mass of St. Gregory, and its source is, is a print, a black and white print that was sent over from Europe of a famous scene of the mass of, of St. Gregory. Most art historians have actually paid attention to the marvelous um, manufacture of the piece made out of feathers, as well as the imagery, which relates to um, the Pope Gregory in a mass that he said. I, though, paid attention to the frame of the work because the frame, also done in feathers, tells us something about why it was made and who made it. The frame names Don Diego de Juanitzin as one of its two patrons, along with Franciscan Pedro de Gante. This patronage is is very important because it shows us of the kind of alliances that indigenous elites like Juanitzin were making with the Franciscans. The Franciscans were, of course, eager to create their own power base in the city. And they did this by aligning themselves with indigenous elites and protecting the interests of indigenous elites. Often the Franciscans found themselves at loggerheads with the Spanish colonial government. So the frame of this work tells us, gives us a little inkling of these kind of political arrangements that are happening on the ground. The date of the featherwork is also quite important. It's 1539. That's the date when the Bishop of Mexico, Zumaraga, is starting his trials of um, idolatry against other members of um, the indigenous elite from other towns in the valley. So it's the year when the indigenous elite starts realizing that their practices are under increasing scrutiny. Juanitzi himself is hauled in for questioning about idolatrous practices. And so 1539 is also a very convenient year to show your 
your kind of Catholic stripes by being the patron of a work of art, which is totally orthodox in its um, imagery. So by turning to the frame of this, rather than just looking at the central iconography, I think we get a different story. Juanitzin is its patron, along with Pedro de Gante, showing us this Franciscan indigenous alliance that's happening in the Valley of Mexico. Juanitzin is savvy enough to seize on totally orthodox Christian imagery um, and proclaim himself as the patron of the work, thereby linking himself to a totally acceptable orthodoxy at a moment when the indigenous elites are being hauled in for questioning for their idolatry. The top of the, the frame also tells us its intended recipient, and that's the Pope at the time. So Juanitzin and Pedro de Gante are essentially entering into a dialogue with the Pope because we assume that this was intended as a gift to the Pope. So again, Juanitzin is not appealing to local Spanish authorities, but to the Pope himself and proclaiming himself as the patron of the most orthodox imagery available to him. So reading the featherwit in this way gives us a totally different understanding of Juanitzin's role, what he's trying to do, and how he envisions himself. Because he envisions himself not as a kind of a bit player in a marginal city, but he envisions himself as a powerful ruler in dialogue with the head of the Catholic Church. What can you tell us about the Franciscans' attempts to remake Tenochtitlan as the new Rome? The Franciscans were one of the most powerful forces in the city. The order settled in the city. They were chosen by Hernan Cortes to lead the evangelization efforts of indigenous peoples. And they built their monastery in the city, and they set up parishes to convert the indigenous peoples. They also struck alliances with the local indigenous elites and often protected their interests. In their own imagining of what this new city was to be, they had a very useful model in Rome. Because, of course, Rome was the heart of the Catholic Church, but Rome had been a pagan city. And pagan monuments were all over Rome, and they had been repurposed to new use, often as Catholic monuments. So Rome as a once pagan city, an imperial city, but now the heart of Catholicism was a very useful model, both conceptually and, and practically for the Franciscans. The Franciscans took over the indigenous temple precincts of the four parts of the city, and it was there that they built the first churches. This had been done in, in Rome and as well as in other parts of Christendom. So the Franciscans were established, were, were following well-established protocols in doing this. They also used names to remake Mexico City as a new Rome. And when you are attentive to the ways they were naming churches, they seem to have been naming the churches after the major churches of Rome. So the religious landscape 
that they imposed through naming also corresponded to Rome. Many people have talked about the ways that Mexico City was thought of as a new Jerusalem, and there's some of this, these ideologies of Jerusalem that the Franciscans are thinking on. But I think the most powerful model and the most available model to them, because many of them knew it firsthand, was, was Rome. You examine post-conquest religious festivals in this 